Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca, and we are so excited to welcome you to Art Pop Talk's 100th episode. For today's episode, we have a guest that may be familiar to you, Lynn Broyles. She joined us one year ago to talk about all things horror and gender, and now she is back to talk with us about this year's horror and thriller films. Lynn Broyles is a writer and academic living in Western Massachusetts. She studies gender and sexuality in horror films. And without further ado, we cannot wait to get straight into today's episode. So here we are with Lynn Broyles. All righty. Hello, hello, everyone. Hello, Lynn. Welcome back to the show. Can you please reintroduce yourself to all the art pop tarts who may not remember you or have heard you before? Give them a little info about yourself and what brings you back on the show today. Well, hey, everybody. It's so good to be back. I'm so excited to be here uh, to talk about some spooky things and some gender things and some spooky gender things. Um, I am Lynn Broyles, uh, a writer and an academic uh, with interest in feminist theory and how it interacts with horror movies and visual culture. So yeah, I love talking about the final girl theory. That's why I was on last time. And that was a great, super fun conversation. And I am so excited to talk about, you know, current horror movies, what's going on, the trends, uh, what representation looks like right now. Well, now that you mention it, we also (laughs) would like to talk about that. I mean, it has been a whole year. We've had another Halloween season come and go. We've seen some evolution of our OG final girl. We have the Halloween kills. We have Jamie Lee Curtis coming out. So I don't know. I mean, what's been going on from your perspective? Has have these concepts evolved? Are you seeing new trends? Like, give us the tea. I think, um, especially in remakes right now, um, they're really trying to, I guess, wokeify, I say in, in a, (laughs) in a very ironic way. Um, I, they're trying to wokeify these old monsters Um, And it kind of really comes off very cringe. Um, For example, we got the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You guys probably saw that clip going around Twitter and uh, social media when it was about to come out. Um, uh, Leatherface comes onto a bus and this guy has his phone up and is recording him and says, try anything, you're canceled, bro. (laughs) I I, I honestly hate it so much, Lynn. We are going to talk about that like wokeism mm-hmm. a lot more throughout this episode, but I cannot tell you it brings me so much like hate joy for you to like talk about <laughs> it already because I'm just glad we're on the same page. I feel like wokeify is even though it's like a simple term, I feel like that's the exact word Gianna and I have been missing from our vocabulary. Like it's a very academic way to to like be critical of things that theoretically like should be bringing progress to yeah. the genre yeah. but we're talking about it in kind of this critical context. Definitely. It's it just comes off as performative and weird and cringe and my my leather face shouldn't be confronted with cancel culture. I don't think. So like he's he's innocent of that. 
And and you know what maybe should be canceled, like in theory, is like murdering people. Like, <laughs> we, you know, we we like horror movies, and mm-hmm. and they exist in that realm to bring us in, into that that area of fear. But you know what, like, is one of the biggest you know uh uh-ohs of all time is like I don't know being mass serial killer like yeah (laughs) (laughs) definitely I don't know I mean I think some of it has worked to a better degree than the very corny Texas Chainsaw Massacre which also in that in that movie uh they roll into this very dusty Texas town and see that uh, also they're like um like YouTuber we're going to redo this town in kind of a hustle culture. Like we're going to flip this town and make a bunch of money and profit. It's a very weird premise. Um, And they see that on one of the buildings is a Confederate flag and they like go up and rip it down. It's very, it's so oddly like signaling. It's like virtue signaling, but not, there's no substance beneath it. Yes, exactly. And maybe this brings us into a larger conversation and like already like there's no escaping this topic like it's been on Bianca and I's minds we have had conversations on the podcast between Bianca and myself a little bit about what's been going on with Hocus Pocus with that kind of woke humor we've also talked about just the fantasy genre and how like political commentary has become a part of something as dumb as House of the Dragon. And so I think there's a certain level of escapism and just pure entertainment that comes in with something like horror or fantasy. And I and I really don't understand why we are seeing this political commentary in something that is meant to evoke escapism. So I mean, what where is that line and and why are we seeing it in this mode of trans, uh, entertainment? I think it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to, well, I want to show that I'm on the side of of good. I like I I want to signal that I know the terms, I know the what the the conversation we're having. Um, I don't want to be criticized for not speaking to that. I guess, but it's a. I do think there are things that we don't need to worry about that. We, we don't need to worry about that in our, you know, medieval um, witch fantasy for children. That's okay. Um, for that one specifically, I, I don't know. I think they had to make them a little bit more tolerable because in, in Hocus Pocus 1, like they are eating children's souls. <laughs> so yeah. What's the problem? What's the problem? It's, a, it's, a, it's an Halloween movie. I, I still I still don't understand why Hocus Pocus 2 needed to be more tolerable than the PG Hocus Pocus 1. That's true. I, I do think it, it ran into the issue of like the Jason and Freddy movies where the villains became the protagonists. And we have to, I think they overcorrected. I think they tried to make it about like Wiccan sisterhood and that kind of shit, which like go off, but not, not, you know, not my cup of tea in this, in this (laughs) arena. But um, it was a little, you could see the, the sweat. They were trying a little too hard on that one. Well, I know we're uh, probably going to return to some of that here soon. So I want to continue to dive in a little bit. Uh, Something that I have been 
chopping at the bit to talk about is Don't Worry Darling. And I I so wish that I was in a film studies class like right now to talk about this. <laughs> So we need your expert opinion on the film overall. So I'm going to give a spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen Don't Worry Darling. Lynn has full reign to dive into to all the movies that we're going to talk about. So as we move throughout the conversation, spoilers on movies just are going to happen. If you don't want to listen, come back later on. Uh, we've given her full permission in that sense. So I'm going to go wild with it. Oh, please do. Please do. So we were talking about, Gianna and I were talking about Don't Worry Darling um, in the context of a thriller movie. And we'll talk a little bit about its lineage with Stepford Wives uh, that comes at the topic from more of a campy sense. But I think what Don't Worry Darling was trying to do was make its mark uh, in telling the story in a a more thriller-like sense. So um, and can you tell us a little bit about how the film doesn't or does succeed in doing that and talking about gender politics in this manner? I think the film, I think it succeeds mostly on a visual level. I think there were some really compelling visuals in there, um, like the wrapping the face in plastic. That was very that evoked something in me. Like I was afraid and I (laughs) was getting uncomfortable. Um, So yeah, I do think visually it was interesting in how it like in how it visualized the entrapment of being a housewife at that time. Like when the uh, wall was coming behind her and she was becoming trapped between the wall and the window. I mean, that's a very, evocative image that communicates like suffocation both literal and emotional um so that was really cool i think on most other levels it was (laughs) really corny (laughs) but um visually i i applaud I have kind of a follow-up question to that and this kind of falls in a vein of some of what bianca and i wanted to talk about because I think another um, trend that we are seeing is this artistic direction aspect of these thriller and horror movies that have recently come out. Don't worry, darling, being one of them. And I suppose maybe I am a little bit critical of this like default artsy lens with then this other kind of like no substance to the rest of the um, plot of the movie. And so I, it's just been like really odd to see this like highly artful direction kind of take precedence over everything else. And then this movie gets like a 20 minute standing ovation at Venice (laughs) film festival. It's like, really everybody like Mm -hmm, we're just mm -hmm. gonna like call this a masterpiece because it had a slightly artsy lens to it like give me a break I don't know it's definitely like doing art house drag and not well but it's also I when it came out at those festivals the reviews were kind of like yeah it's mid but that's okay like it's (laughs) it's it's a basic like thriller big like studio produced so like what's wrong with it and I'm like I I kind of agree it is what it is it's it's a gentleman six like I uh it just I think maybe also the hype 
uh, surrounding, obviously we had the drama going on behind the scenes, but the cast and we have a woman director and it's like, I really don't, I really don't want to hate on a film directed by a woman, especially when Booksmart was so mm-hmm. enjoyable. Yeah. Like I, I, I love Booksmart and I was really, really excited for Olivia to deliver on something that's a little bit, uh, you know, just, I guess, branching off into a different genre. Like obviously Booksmart is a, is a comedy, but I think uh, I just watched A24's The Witch for the first time Ooh, yes. this Halloween. Yes. I also, I mean, obviously Midsommar is another A24 film that's, you know, kind of known for breaking these horror boundaries with uh, producing something that's creating fear in an environment that is not traditionally known for invoking those feelings and things like that. So I, I think with Don't Worry Darling, it just, it fell so flat in that sense. Like there are these other movies that offer us this kind of non-traditional thriller landscape that really successfully delivered on making me feel a little bit stronger. But I think at the end of the day, I just like, I I didn't care at the end of the movie. Like it, it didn't offer me anything new that yeah. I haven't seen before. Um so that kind of leans into uh, back to the original or the 2004 version of the Stepford Vibes I wanted to talk to you about. How did you find that transition from this like very campy 2000s movie to what we have in Don't Worry Darling? How did you kind of as a viewer interpret that difference? Mm-hmm. I think it's not too far off with aesthetically. Um, This is very like nuclear desert, 1960s atomic, um, like that kind of era. Um, While Stepford Wives is very Connecticut. But I think um, it's just the, the key is the sense of humor about itself because Stepford Wives, the 2004 version is definitely self-aware of like the jokes it's making, the campiness of it. Um, Bette Midler is in it, which kind of implies a campiness, uh, going back to Hocus Pocus 2. But um, this one just takes itself very seriously and is like, this is commentary about women's rights. And I'm like, okay. Uh (laughs) Like, I get it. Like, I just feel like they were being so overt. Yes. And not not that that's a bad thing, but it felt like, women's rights 101 for high schoolers and and that's great that's all well and good but it's like it wanted so badly to like reach the top of the hill but it just like tuckered out you know it's kind of similar to did you guys see men uh it was an a24 movie that came out this summer and it was very much like this is saying something about gender this is like making a statement, but you couldn't tell what the statement was. And like, that's kind of, but in this one, it's like the statement is almost too obvious. I, I get it. You're, you're over laboring the point, you know? Um, and I feel like it's a point that's not, not that it's not relevant. I just feel like there new. are so many other more pressing women's issues that are happening right now. Mm-hmm. And it felt like, <laughs> all those current fears, like real fears that women have were just like, like, yeah. Yeah. You afraid of being a housewife. It's like, well, there's kind of some other stuff on my mind. here, Mm -hmm. Olivia. Yeah. And I mean, like the 2004 one was very kind of like sex in the city feminism where it was like, 
yeah, I can work and be happy and be sexually liberated and have kids if I want. And like, you can have it all kind of capitalistic. Um, it's all about outward success and upward mobility kind of thing. And then the 1975 one is very much about like second wave, like I want the right to a divorce, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, so this is kind of a weird in between unsuccessful version of that where it leans more to the visual campiness and like um kind of swinging <laughs> like 60s version of it um but with nothing really to say yeah i feel like the interesting thing about don't don't worry darling is it does fall trapped to some of the concepts that we've talked about on the podcast like um futurism and how otherworldly uh, uh, constructions take are, are kind of fabricated in this mid-century modern light. And um, so I felt like Don't Worry Darling was just a continuation of that. I would say this movie reminds me, thinking of like just the lineage of this plot, I think this movie is the equivalent to like the Barbra Streisand version of Star is Born. Like it's mm. maybe not the best one out of the remakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, um, but just let's kind of keep this conversation going and and possibly go back to Hocus Pocus 2. We've talked about some of the things that Don't Worry Darling has fallen trapped to. And I think some of the same things possibly apply to Hocus Pocus when we're thinking of remakes or reboots. Bianca and I were perhaps critical about the Sanderson sisters backstory and how I feel as though sequels fall kind of trap trapped to making sure that they do an intro scene with a backstory. It seems like a very common <laughs> mm -hmm. formula that we see, but with that aside, with this being a movie that, you know, also lends itself to a children's movie, but it's also, you know, has, has, stayed with us at, as adults and it has been put in this genre as a cult classic, we're critical in the sense that this backstory doesn't lend itself to the camp factor that we know and love. And going back to that wokeism, right, and wokeifying this plot line, Bianca and I didn't feel as though we needed a reason for the Sanderson sisters to be witches or that they eat children. We were comfortable with just knowing that that is what they were. So mm -hmm. from your perspective- Or even per just having a reason to love them. Sorry to cut you off, Jenna, but like, yeah. I don't I don't need a reason to love the Sanderson sisters. Like, I don't need you to present their like sisterly bond of how they became witches and this old woman in the woods from Ted Lasso gives you the book. And like, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just like, I already, you, you hooked me. I'm good, you know. Yeah, no, and honestly, it confused me a little bit because now I'm like confused about is Winnie the only witch and like are the other two only witches because like Winnie, like that honestly confused me even more. It opened up a lot of questions. Right? Uh, like especially I was like, but in the in the first one, there's a moment when they go mother, like, and they talk about like their their mother who was a witch, and I'm like, was that supposed to be her? Anyway, it really just complicated a lot of things. Um, but no, it was like they were cool and feminist like icons or like cool girl Halloween costumes, I guess, without 
you know, a tragic backstory <laughs> without like the preacher of the town, like having a vendetta against them. <laughs> it's just, it felt very like heavy handed. It felt very similar to the fear street uh, trilogy that came out on Netflix recently. I was like, are they reusing these sets maybe? Um, but yeah. And also I'm, a little bit bitter about the fact that I feel like the audience intended for this movie was children. And I'm not saying that the first one wasn't also, but I really felt that with the second movie. And I felt that with some of the even plot changes that we got and this specific focus that Winnie's kiss with, with Billy the zombie was just one kiss because like, God forbid they got jiggy with it. Like that would just be like so scandalous. Like that was the charm of Hocus Pocus one was that it was a little bit horny. Um, right. Was that we we're talking about yabos and virgins? Of course, that's where I learned what a virgin was. That's where we all learned what a virgin was. <laughs> right, but then we had yeah. the the kid being like, "Oh, mommy, like, what's a virgin?" And then yeah. you know, her being like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh." I was like, instantly. I actually no. did think that line was <laughs> one of the funnier ones in the new one because it was like. I thought I thought that that was one of the. There were a few moments in, in Hocus Pocus too where they they really like encapsulated like all the things that we thought of as like young kids. Like when I watched Hocus Pocus one, like Lynn is saying, you're like, all right, he's a virgin. We'll just we'll just roll with it. Like not <laughs> sure what that means, but like okay, like you know. Go. So I thought that was a very kind of a, a good memento to us watching it as adults. But the rest of it. Hmm. didn't succeed to that level yeah it was written by a a comedy person named jen d'angelo who is like a frequent like podcast guest on the things i listen to and stuff and she has talked about her love of hocus pocus one she like freaked out at the opportunity and was so excited and so happy to like get to do this project and like i think you can tell i think you can tell that like there is a reverence and a appreciation for the fans and the the joy of the first movie. Um, but I think it was a little bogged down with some plot manipulations and some unnecessary backstory kind of stuff, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes at Art Pop Talk too, like, you know, we can just let Hocus Pocus 2 be Hocus Pocus 2. I feel like we all knew <laughs> kind of like what this movie was going to be. Oh, and totally. like, I think we can probably put it to bed now, but now that we have Lynn's hot takes, like, I'm at I'm at peace with it. I, well, I, I was I'll expecting no. it to be really bad. I was like this, my expectations were really low. So I was like, this is serviceable. This is, <laughs> you know, hitting the spot. And Kathy and Jimmy is funny as hell, always is. Okay, well, Lynn, oh my gosh, there, I'll have to send you this TikTok that I saw of someone on set shooting, uh, like filming a, a moment behind the scenes. And it was of Kathy and Jimmy, and she was on her little, um, like DJ Roombas, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and she ad libbed or whatever, like made up this, uh, scene where she was like "Ooh, like they're vibrating and then kind of like a like a funny way like it was like a (laughs) like a sex joke and I was it was great and like of course it wasn't in the original um (laughs) movie but I just love that you know at least I knew 
that she was having a good time and, oh, totally. and hopefully had fun putting her like own take on the character again. But I would have absolutely loved if that would have been in there. Like what a missed opportunity. <laughs> The best joke in the movie to me is when they're at Walgreens, like putting all the lotions uh, all over themselves and she gets out of the face mask and goes, tis the face of a child. <laughs> That's Would hilarious. 100% <laughs> agree. I think that whole scene was very clever when talking about like youth and like beauty products. Like I thought mm-hmm. that was all very clever. Um, so, you know, like I said, I think like we can be at peace with it now, but what I will say and what I am not at peace with is the blonde movie that, uh, came out on Netflix. So I can, I can feel that you have some thoughts about this one (laughs) as do we, and part of Bianca and I's very brief conversation about blonde was we're just, we're not really sure where this movie belongs just because of its overall ignorance or it just being basically a trauma scape just one scene after another I don't know if I've ever experienced a movie like this and you know it's obviously based on this historic character but it is definitely a fiction and I'm not sure if it was presented to us in this in in that way or we knew that it was going to be a fiction I thought everyone thought it was going to be this biopic and I I would not place it there but I think that is what is so puzzling is that I don't I don't know what to do with this movie I don't know where to Mm -hmm. put it and hopefully you can you know shed some light on on where we can put it (laughs) (laughs) well I was thinking because it is based on a novel by Joyce Carol Oates right and she is a pretty noted feminist author, but I can see how in text it might be an interesting exercise of like maybe what is behind this Marilyn myth. It could I can see in text it working, I guess. Um, it not a not a pleasant <laughs> like it wouldn't be pleasant in that in that um media either but in film it was just really unrelenting and like horrible to to watch um i think like in terms of its its genre i don't think it's horror in that it is it is horrific but i don't think it has that there's no suspense it's absolutely suspenseless. Like there's like, you know that something terrible is going to happen and then it does. And then she feels bad about it. And then it happens again. Um, but there's no ride up the roller coaster and then you climax and then release. Like there's no release ever. Yeah. I think another thing to add to blonde as well is potentially just the timing of this movie coming out. And I think potentially some of the, commentary i was highly highly disturbed by the fetus speaking to marilyn and i don't know what you thought about that if you're comfortable with sharing any thoughts um because that happened several times throughout the movie and i was just not okay like watching that at all it was very disturbing it felt very shoehorned in for some reason like i don't know why we needed to go in utero i don't know why the fetus needed to have like a voiceover um and like actually accuse her of like 
hurting the it previously and saying that that was the same baby it was really horrible and i just it it struck me more as like a anti-choice like christian short video or something um than a real movie i'm curious to just how you kind of reconcile watching something like that with blonde that seems very uh you know kind of anti-feminist despite the you know kind of original writings from the book it comes from with things like we talked about from uh you know last time you were on the show with things like the final girl or even like gianna said and you were talking about the beginning we are very much in this age of reboots but we do have those kind of like reoccurring final girls jamie lee coming back in the final halloween so how how do we kind of wrestle with things like blonde and then at the same time jamie lee coming back as the final girl in a reboot nonetheless but you know having these Mm -hmm. characters bounce back and forth within this genre i think unfortunately exploiting women's pain is never going to go away in in art unfortunately like that's and i think blonde is an example of that um but i think on the flip side you also have more representation of women who aren't victims who aren't like childlike in their naivety and like openness <laughs> and um i'm going back to blonde a little bit but um yeah i think there's so much more variety now in terms of women in specifically horror and in film in general just one of the recent releases in horror is uh prey have you guys seen prey on hulu okay it is a kind of prequel sequel continuation of the predator franchise which um yeah a lot of uh, young boys liked in the 1980s um but this one is uh set in the 1700s in the great american plains uh with a comanche warrior girl who is going up against the predator or a version of him um from that time period and it's really kick-ass and super cool and the action is sick and like it was just really amazing to see like a native woman and an all-native cast like really getting to kick ass on screen uh i think now that you mention it i think i've seen like the trailers for that come Mm -hmm. up it's not scary it's very much like actiony kind of that kind of violence but okay Okay. Oh, I'm excited. I'll have to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and not everything has been so bad in in horror. I feel as though you know our our conversations are kind of you know nitpicking the things that we have seen that we haven't liked, but um, there's been a lot of better conversation um, around the movie Pearl, which um, yes. you know we have talked about <laughs> a24 on the pod obviously a lot, and. Pearl, for those who don't know, is Ty West's origin story of the movie X, which was really kind of like inspired by 70s slasher flicks. And so Pearl being this origin story really kind of takes on, or I should say what people were excited about, was it taking on this kind of classic horror aesthetic? People are really interested in the musical score. They were interested in how 
the the credits were even rolled kind of at the beginning. And so I feel here is a really good example of how a more kind of like interesting, unique, artful direction uh, really worked. You know, A24 sometimes can be hit or miss with that direction, um, but I think overall people um, really liked Pearl. So I don't, I don't, we don't have to compare Pearl to Blonde, um, you know, if that's not helpful, but you know, I, Lynn, I don't know if you agree about the direction and and how you liked it. Yeah. Um, I adore Pearl. That's one of my favorite movies of the year. Definitely. It feels very grand and painterly. It's very much like a big 1950s technicolor, um, Hollywood epic. Um, it was very much inspired by Wizard of Oz. So there was a lot of those little touches, um, throughout and then, it being a prequel to X, which is the opposite aesthetic, which is very grungy, like dark porno, <laughs> like a sleazy barn, 1970s Texas Chainsaw vibes. Um, it was just a really, really cool juxtaposition, and both of them were done um, extremely well. Uh, I would say, in comparison to Blonde, I think Blonde felt so much more arbitrary, like the switching between the black and white and the color. It's like, okay, I'm trying to find like a, why, when we're in black and white, why are we in black and white? You know what I mean? Um, so, and that felt a little haphazard. Um, the I, 2001 ass baby um, is what my notes say. It looked like the film 2001, um, like really bad. Um, and then, as films about female characters that are meant to be like kind of character studies, we have Pearl and Blonde, like Pearl is a really ferocious, like overwhelming screen presence. She's a insane person whom I love. And Marilyn is like a perpetually kicked down child or, or like kitten or something. And it's really difficult to watch. Um, this is a really like dumb and not helpful like pop culture reference, but um, and I I hate being that girl that's like, have you watched The Office? But Blonde <laughs> reminds me of when they're The Office is like having a Halloween party and Gabe is trying to like adult up The Office party and he brings in this like weird movie to show that's just like random scenes and like they're like really like disturbing and people yeah. are just like what the heck is happening like that's all I was thinking about when I was watching Blonde and that has and now that you're saying it kind of that like weird pop of like black and white just like randomly thrown in I was like what are what are we doing here it reminded me of like in college when my professors would say don't show us your photographs like in black and white just because like you think that like that's artsy like you're just putting a filter over it like artsy it's not for really doing sake. anything yeah yeah definitely yeah <laughs> I mean the guy I was disappointed because the director Andrew Dominic is a frequent collaborator with Nick Cave who is like a fantastic musician I've liked for forever he's a wonderful artist and they've made like some films together and I'm like ooh, that bodes well okay never mind <laughs> I just thinking about Pearl and the actual you know kind of good movies and the Hulu movie you mentioned um 
this is a kind of a random question, but Andrew and I were just talking about, you know, it is Oscar season kind of uh, we'll be here before we know it. So as a follow up, you know, from our last conversation after this round of thriller horror movies has come out for 2022, where do you think the genre sits and these films sit in particular as we kind of line up into award season? Again, not that award season, you know, it has <laughs> pits and peaks just like everything else. And, you yeah. know, we're probably going to be Green upset book. by all of that. But um, what do you think? Um, I think that out of everybody, the most likely to get any kind of nom is Mia Goth from Pearl. There is a truly outstanding, like, eight-minute-long credit sequence where she holds a smile and then starts crying because her face is hurting so badly. And, like, it's it's incredible, the work that she's done. Um, but, yeah, I could see I could see maybe that getting talked about. Um, but, unfortunately, there's really very, very few instances of horror like making it into the academy talk i think the exorcist and silence of the lambs are the only two horror movies that have ever won best picture um and there are very few ever nominated but i think it like the level of like the independent spirit awards that's where you can really find some cool suggestions of like horror movies you need to watch that have come out in the past year Nice. Well, maybe we'll uh, bring you back on after the Oscars and we can have a <laughs> debrief with Lynn, who is not only like, obviously, you are an expertise in horror and gender, but you know, a, a film scholar of, of all films. Uh, I would love your your take on those once we get them as well. But I want to know what's coming up, you know, with you in general, you did mention to us that you're working on a slasher novel and multimedia zines. So do tell. Yeah. Um, over the past couple months, I've been thinking like, what do I really want to write? Like, what do I love? Maybe I can just write the things that I love myself. <laughs> so the experiment of writing an 80s slasher, um, we're still still chipping away but it's been a very fun exercise to kind of um translate the visual scenes that are playing out in my head like 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 from films uh into a novel has been interesting and then um the zine i i'm playing around with um multimedia zines i've always been interested in collage and especially like video and uh, still collage so I'm looking at zines as a way to integrate video and you know song audio song clips uh, and still images into kind of one uh, series so we absolutely love it and to kind of I don't know piggyback off of Bianca's questions we know that the award season isn't always the best judge of character or product. So if we just, you know, to wrap things up, we just need Lynn's like top horror watches. You know, I know that there were some movies that we didn't talk about. Uh, Barbarian has gotten a lot of press. I've been really interested in the marketing behind, I believe it's Smile. 
which is probably not the best horror film, but the way that they put people in the wild to uh, publicize that movie, I think is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think the branding is on point. So I don't know what, what should we add to our watch list and what have we not talked about? Um, I think this one is kind of a wild pick. I myself did not really expect much, but one of the most enjoyable films of the year for me was Orphan First Kill. A hilarious, so funny, so funny film. I I loved every minute of it. <laughs> you should definitely watch it. Unapologetic. I enjoyed Esther's, every minute. <laughs> Esther's revenge continues as she um, wreaks havoc on families throughout America. Um, but yeah, love that little queen, orphan first kill, fantastic movie. Like, hey. When your slasher novel gets turned into a Hollywood <laughs> film, can are we invited to the red carpet premiere? Yes, like, can we be pressed? Of course. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, everyone. Like, when this comes out, go read the slasher. So we can go to <laughs> for purely selfish reasons. Um, I'm trying well. to think of any other. Barbarian was fantastic. Um, okay. It was one that. Do you know what was directed by a whitest kid? You know. One of the whitest kids you know directed Barbarian, which is insane to me. Zach Kreger. <laughs> like, yeah. I was listening past. to a lot of press with Justin Long about Barbarian, and I, I haven't watched it yet. It is definitely on my list, but I heard it's so scary that I just like haven't. It's very felt... scary. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just, I really. I really haven't gotten to that level yet. And it was getting way too close to Halloween. I was like, the, the, mm -hmm. the stars are aligning way too much on spooky season. Like I just didn't feel ready yet. So, so it is, it's very scary. Yeah. It's incredibly scary. Um, but okay. It is also like about what if you booked a B Airbnb and there was already a guy there, would you stay would you what if he is kind of creepy but kind of hot also like <laughs> obviously um, invite him in obviously <laughs> yeah and it's it plays on it explicitly plays with like women's fear of men in an interesting way of like um being alone with a man in a house um and that kind of thing and being safe in your neighborhood so it is interesting i can't believe it came from a whitest kid but good for him <laughs> Well, so we will definitely add Barbarian to the watch list. I will try to get over my scaredy catness and <laughs> do our special guest proud. But I was um, trying to say, like, if I could just hone in on the like, goofy Justin Long being Justin Long, like, I, I really, I really want to watch it. And he was so like sweet talking about like how much fun it was doing this girl. movie, and then everyone was like. <laughs> don't go see it <laughs> like i don't i don't know scared. if he's the sweetest let's just say that ah okay. interesting <laughs> um, i'm so scared but i want to watch <laughs> i also maybe before we go something interesting to maybe talk about would be Dahmer. um i don't know if you've watched that i did finish that series did you do you have any thoughts about that show I did not watch. I was a little grossed out just from what I read about it. I used yes. to be a, a Ryan Murphy, like, I'll watch all the American Horror Story or whatever. But it just got to the point where it's too gross and too just, like, 
violent and fetishistic and nasty. And that seemed like this was all that was. So I avoided it. Well, part of the reason why I, I asked that question is because something that maybe we didn't talk about so, so much in this using that particular terminology is that something like Dahmer was more accurate in terms of a biopic, but it did obviously put that in light of fetishizing what he did. And the same thing goes kind of for Marilyn in that directorial light is that it really just fetishized her trauma. And I guess I don't know how to kind of combat the two. Again, it might not be fair to compare because I'm still grappling with with blonde but it's a it's an interesting concept or lens that I feel like has just kept coming up and mm-hmm. again I I don't know where to put all these things especially when they're they're sometimes real or they're based in reality and then they're not but obviously Dahmer was completely based in reality mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, well, on that note, Lynn, before we let you go, <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or share with the listeners before we let you go? I don't think so. I'm just glad to be on. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate uh, an open invitation to talk about horror movies of the day. I- I'll gladly You're take it. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, always welcome. Always such a treat to to have you here. And we, as always, appreciate you and your expertise in horror. You are our go-to gal. Um, so everyone, this is just a friendly reminder. If you like this conversation with Lynn, you should definitely go back and listen to our episode with her from last Halloween 2021. Um, so everybody, with that, definitely give Lynn a follow. We will link all of her social media and where to get in touch with her in the show notes of this episode. And with that, we'll talk to you all in two Tuesdays. Bye everyone. Bye-bye. Art Pop Talks executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.